Welcome, everyone, to Square One, a podcast series run by the Harvard Association for Law and Business. My name is Ramin Sheth, and I'm a current member of the advisory board for the Harvard Association for Law and Business, one of the largest student-run organizations at Harvard Law School. Today, we're excited to be joined by Brad Jones, founding partner of Redpoint Ventures. Brad, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Ramin. Brad, it'd be you know it'd be great to take a step back and talk a little bit about your journey to Redpoint. You know, so talk talk a bit more about your educational background at, at Harvard College, Stanford Law School, and Stanford Business School, the different types of roles you held in your career early on, and how this ultimately led you to founding Redpoint. Right. So I did go to Harvard College, and I majored in chemistry, not for any real good reason, but it was just something <laughs> I uh, I sort of enjoyed. And as I got more into chemistry, I realized the part of it that I enjoyed most was the physics aspect of it. So I did a master's degree at Harvard in physics and um, was doing spectroscopy, scattering, quantum mechanics type work. And as I got ready to graduate, I realized I really didn't have anything that I wanted to do with those subjects as a career. I I didn't really want to teach and I didn't want to work in a lab. So I made a, a... changed there and went to Stanford doing law and business in a JD MBA program. And when I graduated from that at the age of 26, I was trying to decide what to do. And a couple friends of mine were familiar with Brentwood Associates, the venture capital firm in Los Angeles. And I met with the founders and decided that that would really be interesting for me. And it would pretty much join all the things I had studied in school together because in venture you really do use technology, business, and even occasionally it helps to know the law. So I went to Brentwood Associates in 1981, and that was the year that the IBM PC was introduced. And I I mentioned that because there really weren't many investment opportunities at the time. Venture was a, a subset of private equity investing and really almost wasn't even a distinct asset class back then. So uh, the kinds of investments available were disk drives, tape drives, uh, semiconductors for building these very basic computers that existed at the time. Um, As time went on, of course, we've watched the evolution of technology and and the early 90s biotechnology took off like crazy. In the mid 90s, uh, networking took off. And of course, in the late 90s, the internet took off. And it was in 1999 that we decided to start Redpoint Ventures. And we did that because at Brentwood, there were six partners, three focused on technology and three focused on healthcare investing. And those areas had become fairly distinct, and so we decided that we would create a new fund devoted solely to technology, and my three partners that did healthcare investing would create a new fund devoted solely to healthcare. And Redpoint was the technology firm, and Versant Ventures is the firm that focuses on healthcare. And at the same time, IVP, another firm uh, in Silicon Valley, was doing the same thing. They, they were investing in healthcare and IT, and, and also felt that it made sense to split those activities. So, three of the partners from IVP joined three of us from Brentwood uh, in starting Redpoint, 
and several of the IVP partners joined with my Brentwood healthcare partners to start Versant. So that's interesting. That's interesting of that healthcare and technology divergence, especially because you know now healthcare tech is is one of the hottest areas, um, you know, for classic venture funds. So. You know, you so you co-found Redpoint, and you know over the last twenty years or so, you know your team has grown to be um, quite successful in the industry. I mean, your your firm has invested in a number of fantastic companies over the years. Um, in recent years, including you know Zendesk, Twilio, which just went public, Stripe, uh, of course Netflix in the early days. You know, you touched on kind of the evolution of technology over these you know different periods in time. I'm I'm interested to hear you know how your investment thesis has evolved over the past 20 years. You know, I, I think one of the things that makes Redpoint especially interesting and, and different from other Valley firms is the active focus on, one, being globally proficient, and I think that's evident in the strong you know, China footprint and China team that Redpoint has, um, and, and two, as well as being you know, firmly stage agnostic, investing you know, in the early stage all, you know, all the way up to the, to the normal mature venture stage. So Shed some light on you know what you're seeing globally. You know what's changing, what stayed the same, and and kind of how the investment thesis has changed over the past two decades or so. Sure. Well, clearly you do have to um, stay current with what is hot, what's interesting in the marketplace, and and what will be successful. And in the early days of of my career, <clears throat> they were mostly manufacturing companies, and. They were manufacturing semiconductors or um, other kinds of peripherals, um, and there was a high premium on the experience and capability of the management team, particularly in the manufacturing space. Um, you couldn't back young people who hadn't done any manufacturing if you were investing in a company that was going to make cutting-edge semiconductors. It just doesn't work. So obviously times have changed, and now uh, what the market is looking for is unique ways to use the Internet to provide goods and services to people that they want. And very often there's, there's no manufacturing involved whatsoever. So the emphasis has changed in terms of what you're looking for. The, the idea needs to be a great idea today, and it, and it needed to be a great idea you know, 30 years ago, uh, but the kinds of people that are needed to turn it into reality may be different today from how it was back then. Yeah, I, I think that plays ex- entirely true, especially on the on the consumer side, right? I think in the in the B2B environment, you're still seeing you know teams that are for that are focused coming out you know of of established companies or work previously together, have industry expertise, but especially on the consumer side. Um, I think it's you know, now better than ever that um, you know, the, the incentive is almost to back young people because they're closest to the actual emerging trends of you know, what, uh, what, what users are, are using. And I, you know, I think on that point, we're, we're really at a hockey stick moment for a lot of technologies and industries. And I think you know, one of the tell signs of this is just how many non-traditional technology companies are getting involved in tech M&A. And I, you know, I think when you overlay tech development and financial cycles, you see a pretty interesting trend. You know, regardless of the volatility or trends in the financial markets, tech product cycles progress at a pretty steady pace and, and in a consistent manner. You know, every 10 to 15 years, there's a new fundamental breakthrough. Uh, and we saw this with the PC, the internet, mobile. And now, you know, I think we're on the cusp of VR, AR, some really interesting things going on in AI and blockchain. What are the kinds of, you know, 
which which tech wave do you think is going to be the next high impact generator and and really what excites you about the emerging um, you know technology platforms that are getting built today well i think all of the areas you mentioned are interesting areas for investment and and i don't know that i would elevate one area of investment as being more interesting than another what always turns out to be the case is how people apply these technologies and what they're doing with them and um, when you meet with an entrepreneur and he or she tells you what they're going to do there's the spark that that gets you interested is what are they really going to do with those technologies and how is that going to help people I looked at a really interesting technology. It wasn't a company for investment. It was just a technology that they're using at UCLA, where in brain surgery, they use virtual reality to go into a person's head, a real person's head, based on scans that they've done of that person, and do an operation, remove a tumor, correct a... Uh, um, a um, <laughs> you know, a blood vessel or, you know, some other problem inside the person's head and actually do it on the computer before they do it to the real person. Now, that kind of virtual reality seems pretty exciting to me because of the impact that would have on healthcare outcomes and doctors' abilities to perform successful surgery. So I think that's the kind of thing where, you know, you talk about virtual reality as a as a global investment space, and I'd say, yes, it's interesting. I, I personally have an investment in uh, WeVR, which is a virtual reality company here in Los Angeles. But, but every company, I think, has to have its own application of that technology and show how they are really going to benefit users. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think the interesting thing about these platform, uh, these underlying technologies, too, is that as they become more emergent, I think you're going to see, you know, a lot of second order consequences and effects that are, are challenging to predict out. So, you know, with the rise of the auto came, uh, you know, supermarkets, right? People could actually travel to supermarkets. So I think you'll start to see a lot of interesting things with these types of tangible applications that are going to either spurn on, you know, new industries. They're going to be second order effects for, for different types of, you know, healthcare outcomes. I think with, you know, with all the excitement and buzz, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on, you know, what do you think of venture as, as relative to other asset classes these days and, and the state of valuations? You know, there's a lot of data on how, you know, Frothy the Environment obviously got in 2014 and 15. It significantly cooled down in early 16, um, but then perked up again, you know, in activity in late 16 and, and today. And I think arguably it's too active in certain sectors, you know, the dramatic appreciation of cryptocurrencies um, as of late kind of you know comes to mind. But, you know, LP contributions are up this year. And, and anecdotally, it seems that LPs are more bullish about putting money into venture. And I, I think there's some underlying, underlying mechanics that point to why this may be. And um, you, you, you touched on it with, you know, with the example that you gave. Um, I think the, uh, you know, innovation is, more innovation is happening on the private side compared to public companies. You know, there are material rounds to be a part of pre-IPO. And and market sizes and cost dynamics are just increasingly favorable for, for new startups. And I think if you fundamentally look at the underlying developments going on in tech right now, it's hard not to be bullish about, you know, the impact this is going to have for startups, right? Uh, you know, the company you mentioned, um, those kinds of companies at work have massive, you know, market opportunities. So, you know, what's your view on, on venture as, as an asset class relative, you know, to other assets these days and, and the overall state of valuations in the industry? 
down a bit in the last few years, but there hasn't been anywhere near the volatility that there was back in 2000 and 2001, where where 2000 saw companies with no revenue having multi-billion dollar valuations, only to see a lot of them crash the next year. And um, you know that's part of the venture cycle, and I don't I don't think that bothers me. I don't think it ought to bother anybody. It's it's part of what happens. There's a an enthusiasm that develops for uh, technologies and technology companies, and sometimes it, it it gets ahead of itself, right? And then and then you see it cool down a bit. Uh, but it will always bounce back, and it will always be a good area to invest in because these new companies are solving problems that people want solved. They're they're providing goods and services that people want, and I think that creativity is really something special and something special for the United States that, that we have that and that people do keep creating new companies that will be successful. I, I don't think in terms of the ups and downs of the venture market that you can time the venture market. Um, whenever we go out to raise money and talk to limited partners, we, we make that point because there's a tendency that people have to think that if things are frothy right now, they're going to be bad in a year or two, or if they're bad right now, they might be good in a year or two. Um, and, and it just doesn't always work that way. Um, I, I just don't think you can time it um, at all any more than people can time the public market. And of course, you look at all the studies on that, and um, they're pretty convincing that nobody really can time you know, the public markets, and I, I think that's true of venture, too. So, so in answer to your question, I'm very bullish on the venture market over the long term. It, it still means day-to-day you can't pay unreasonable valuations for companies if, if the market's getting a bit, uh, a bit heady, but um, there, there are always good companies to invest in out there. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense and it resonates because, it, you know, especially if you believe that, you know, the generational companies are getting built right now, you know, as opposed to companies that would create value solely if they timed the markets correctly, you know, via favorable IPO or M&A, which, you know, was happening in, in 2000. It is hard to see, you know, how venture isn't, um, you know, an attractive or uh, an attractive asset class or one to be bullish about, even if the environment were slightly frothy, because ostensibly the value created would be you know, so large that it doesn't really matter if there's a marginal inflation of valuations, right? If we're well away from, you know, the peaks of 2000, um, it seems to still be an environment in which you can make, you know, reasonable and, and smart investments. I think one thing I've, I've thought about, you know, a lot as, as of late is, you know, certainly bullish about startups and their overall value creation, but a little bit concerned with, you know, how the idea of the IPO has changed and, and what this really holds for the future. You know, 20 years ago, um, around the time that you started Redpoint, there were 9,000 public companies. And today, there are only 4,000. And that number will you know, likely decrease further as, as there's a net negative today of companies being listed versus companies that are delisting. And the dynamic is a little bit puzzling at times, given that for companies that do go public, you know, there's a significant amount of cash that's available. So I have a micro and a macro question for you. you know, first, on a more tactical level, you know, what are you observing with respect to um, why less companies are going public or, or how companies are thinking about going public? You know, what are what are the biggest issues that they face or they're thinking through? Are they you know, governance issues, culture issues, 
um, you know, being forced to operate by the Wall Street quarter by quarter type standard, or, or is it something else? And then second, you know, at the 30,000 foot level, you know, conceptually, is it a good or bad thing for society and, and innovation more broadly that less public, you know, less companies are going public? You know, heavy, heavy hitter public tech companies like the Facebooks, Amazons, Googles of the world have so much cash on their balance sheet these days. And, and they've created a market for large scale M&A for which, you know, previously to get liquidity, both for the entrepreneurs, the employees, as well as the investors, you, you had to go public. So I think there's a positive impact of, of that type of large scale M&As because, you know, companies can really act at scale. Um, and if, you know, they keep product visions truly in line, like how Facebook has done with keeping an Instagram or WhatsApp or an Oculus separate, you know, I think there's, there's real impact you can create at scale and with leverage. But I think there's a very real negative impact too, which is, you know, select companies are concentrating a significant amount of, you know, talent and innovation potential. It, it gets harder to build a Google competitor when Google is, you know, picking off sub $50 million businesses left and right, you know, for talent and for, for IP and, and for, for technology. So, you know, how do you think about both, you know, the issue around why less companies are going public or what you're seeing in terms of private companies and how they think about going public? And then the broader question of, you know, whether that's good or bad for society. Right. Well, um, one of the one of the reasons originally, I think, why companies were not going public as early as they used to is Sarbanes-Oxley. That was passed in the early 2000s. Um, it was passed, believe it or not, unanimously in the United States Senate. There were a couple of abstentions, but I think the vote was 98 to zero or something like that. And it shows it's not a partisan thing, but there was a lot wrong with Sarbanes-Oxley when it, it passed. And, of course, what it did is it made companies responsible for reporting their numbers down to the most minute detail and making managements and boards responsible for errors in the reporting of their numbers. Now, this was done in response to frauds that occurred at Enron and WorldCom, but what happened to those two companies was already illegal, so Sarbanes-Oxley wasn't really needed to um, prevent those kinds of situations from recurring. Uh, it was just an emotional reaction to the fact that corporate fraud is bad, and we all know that. Um, but the answer was probably not a great answer. And what entrepreneurial teams did after Sarbanes-Oxley was passed is refrain from going public. They just said, we don't need the headache of doing that. We can access capital in the private marketplace and uh, grow and become much bigger. I mean, Facebook was already a huge company when it went public. And in the old days, they would have gone public five years earlier than they actually did. Yep. And so to, to morph into the second part of your question here, I think it's a, I think it's a really bad thing that companies are – well, let me step back and say there, there are other reasons why companies are waiting to go public, and you touched on a little bit. The M&A alternatives may be better today than they were in the past, and with a lot of acquirers paying up for very early-stage companies, they're often getting valuations in M&A transactions that they couldn't get in an IPO, and historically that wasn't the case. The IPO was always your highest value option, right? So I think it's a combination of the regulatory system and the M&A market that's causing companies to wait. Now, back to the second part of the question, I think it's a bad thing 
It's a bad thing for the public because when you looked at the companies going public 20, 25, 30 years ago, a lot of them had market caps of $100 million. And you don't see that today. Uh, These companies were often raising 15, 20, 25 million dollars in their IPO, which today we look at as a very small sum of money. But uh, what it did for the public at large is give individual shareholders an opportunity to participate in the growth of these companies. And it's it's hard for individual investors to get that today. If you wanted to own Facebook five years before it went public, you couldn't. And, um, and you know, many years ago you could. So I think it's taken away a lot of options for investors, particularly small and middle-sized investors. And it's not just the financial opportunity that's being taken away from them. It's the emotional opportunity to own these companies and feel like you're part of their growth. And I, I just think it's a sad thing that, that the general public is being closed out of those kinds of opportunities. Yeah, and I, I, I empathize with that, and I think it's the access opportunities too. I think, especially if you think of those, if you think of retail investors, they're definitely not par- able to participate in the growth, which which is a shame. And if you think of kind of the small and, and medium-sized funds too, it's shifting the way, um, you know, it's shifting their role in the broader venture landscape as, as well um, to be either, you know, more service providers or, or give more advisory services because it's challenging to get in um, you know, at the areas that they could be a true, true seed player. Um, and, and it's, it's interesting because I think, you know, slightly switching gears, but, you know, we, we touched on it, the landscape of startups itself has dramatically changed, um, you know, in, in the last 15, 20 years. And, you know, at the micro and macro level, you know, at the, at the micro level, market sizes are just significantly bigger. I mean, there were 50 million people on the internet in 1995, and there's going to be over, you know, 5 billion on mobile by 2020. And, you know, at, at least in the early stage, you know, cost structures have exponentially shrunk too. You know, there's no more spending um, that $10 million um, to rack up servers. You know, now you can just power up AWS. So you've seen a number of successful portfolio companies, obviously, over the years, and you've sor- served on the boards of, you know, a number of public companies. Talk a little bit more, you know, aside from the investor side, just about how companies themselves you know, have changed over over that time period. You know, what are what are the operational similarities or differences you've seen in things like you know, relative complexity between getting started versus scaling, um, market opportunities, governance challenges. You know, how how has starting and scaling a company today changed? You know, over the last 10, 15 years. Well, one thing that certainly changed is the pace. Um, today, if you're getting a company started. You've got to move fast or, or you might as well not do it at all because there's competition everywhere. And let's face it, the barriers to entry in a lot of uh, situations today are not as high as they were uh, back 20, 30 years ago. I say that because if you had a unique way of designing a semiconductor chip and that was embedded in complex software and probably also patented, you didn't have somebody else doing that right on your heels. Um, you probably had time to make a few mistakes, um, introduce the product incorrectly, and then pivot and and come out successful on the end. Um, today, it's very different, and a, a lot of these uh, companies that are using the internet to to create new services, 
and products for people, if they don't get it right the first time, somebody else may get it right, you know, right after them, and, and the opportunity may be gone. So I think, I think the biggest change is just the time frame in which you have to respond to things. When you're talking about public companies, um, I do think the regulatory framework is challenging. Uh, you, you've still got Sarbanes-Oxley, obviously, although I think most companies have now adapted to that and have systems in place to keep their financials, you know, in a in a fairly detailed way, consistent with what Sarbanes-Oxley requires. But there's other regulatory hurdles as well, and I, I think those are a constant challenge for companies. Uh, one company I'm on the board of has been sued several times for things that really were technicalities that, that you wouldn't even know to stop doing until somebody sues you. But, you know, there are people that can make money off suing you, and so they do. And uh, that's just kind of a tax on the system, I think. And uh, it's too bad that that we couldn't get a little bit of regulatory reform on that so that companies that do things that might technically violate a law but don't hurt anybody can, you know, change what they're doing to comply without having to pay huge sums of money. So I, I think those are challenges in public companies as opposed to private companies. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested actually to dive in a little bit more on, on that latter topic you were talking about on government and regulatory um, policy, and, and we'll dive in in a bit. But actually, before that, I want to focus on you know the moving fast piece that you were talking about, and specifically, I, I want to tie that to you know culture and and really the state of Silicon Valley and, and the tech community today. You know, I, th- I think enduring venture firms like a Redpoint and some of the most successful large tech companies, you know, Google come to Google comes to mind. I think Airbnb in the next decade likely have always struck me as, you know, inspirational for the fact that they've had such strong cultures. You know, to stay on top for that long requires teamwork, trust, you know, a strong, and a strong commitment to value. And, and whether that's customer-focused value, external value, or, um, you know, internal value. I think lately in Silicon Valley, we've started to see more and more instances of cultural backlash and companies really breaking um, their continuity and their, their operational excellence because of lack of adherence to you know proper governance and, and good culture. And I think part of that actually has a direct relationship to growth. I think sometimes the motto of, you know, grow fast and break things actually has a negative or an adverse impact in terms of mentality on, on how to grow a business. You know, when, when we think of kind of recent examples, you know, Zenefits faced this, chopped their valuation in half, you know, Theranos has been embroiled in, in endless lawsuits. And then, you know, most recently over the past month or so, Uber. Um, you know, the, the historical, you know, over the past couple of years, kind of Silicon Valley darling, um, today doesn't have a CEO, COO, CTO, or CFO. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, how, how do you think about, you know, culture and, and the challenge to maintaining a strong culture and, and really the specific issues of, of growing fast and, and that dynamic that's, that's facing the tech community today? that I, I want to respond to. Um, one is just overall good business practices. And I would say whether you're a venture firm or an entrepreneurial company, uh, it's absolutely essential that you be honest 
and that you have good business practices. And I, I agree with what you said about that, um, that that improves your operations. And, and it improves your operations in a number of ways. I mean, first and foremost, when you're talking about dealing with customers or vendors or employees, you you gain trust of people by being honest with them, and you get better relationships with those people, and that helps you grow your business on, t on top of being the right thing. Let's turn to the second aspect, which is more the, the, the cultural aspect of um, inclusiveness and avoiding sexism, racism, and, and, and things of that nature. Um, but here again, you know, good practices will reward um, those who, who have them. And, you know, Uber has gotten very big, evidently, without having good practices across the spectrum in that regard. But look, the market's taking care of that, right? Um, the, the CEO got fired, and I'm sure part of that was due to uh, a lot of the reported activities that, that he had done. Um, one of the board members resigned because of inappropriate remarks to the employees of the company. I, I think that's a really good thing that that's happening because it shows everybody that 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 is not a good way to do business. And even in a highly successful company, they're going to ask people to step aside if they're doing the wrong thing. And there's no question that in a society like ours, and, and particularly in an industry segment like ours, we want everybody to have access to it based on their merit and their capabilities. And one of the things I've always told people about the venture industry that I like is that almost all of the time, to me, it has seemed like an inherently fair uh, segment of the marketplace. I know the whole time that we've been investing in companies, we invest in CEOs regardless of their skin color, their nationality, their gender, because not only is it the right thing, but we want to make money, right? And if the person who is best for that job um, is, is one thing or another, we, we don't care. We, we want to go forward and make money. So I, I think 90% of the time, the venture ecosystem and the entrepreneurial ecosystem works pretty well. I know there are people that will take issue with that and say that it doesn't, but when it doesn't, I think it does correct, and, and Uber is an example of that. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things in thinking through you know, culture and diversity, I think, I think Chris Saka had said this um, when I was listening to him speak. He said, you know, there's, there's one way to approach or think about culture and diversity, and it's you know, investing in, in that because you want to give others opportunity. There's the other way of thinking about it, which is it's almost you know, greed or, in, uh, or, or passion to make money or passion to have outsized returns which force you to actually invest in different kinds of people because different kinds of people see different types of opportunities um, that, you know, one can't see if, if, if one is investing in, in, you know, people, uh, in all people that either are of the same skin color, have come from the same socioeconomic background. Um, it's difficult or it's challenging to see the different types of entre uh, opportunities that entrepreneurs of different skin colors, different you know backgrounds, et cetera, can actually see. And I, I think that's right. I think, you know, there's, 
obviously been numbers of studies, uh, you know, business studies on, on how diversity helps um, both the workplace, I think, from um, a perspective of decision-making, a perspective of, um, you know, balancing thought processes. But I think there's also a piece there, which is just um, understanding markets or seeing markets has to come from, you know, diversity of background, because at the end of the day, customers are, are all sorts of different types of people, too. Yeah, I, and, and I prefer to think about it the second way you said that, that it, it's good to do because it improves your returns and it improves your outcomes. Um, investing in people because they're a minority or a woman or something it almost implies a little bit that you feel like they might need the help, which, yeah. I, which I know you and I don't, don't think. Exactly. But it, it's much better to look at it from the standpoint that you should do it because it's good for your business. Exactly. And it's it's interesting. I, I kind of want to probe, you know, on that on that on that train of thought, and and really get an understanding, you know, and your perspective on how is how is picking companies, you know, changed over over your uh, you know your career in venture. I and I say that from the perspective that you know one of the most interesting phenomena to me about venture is you know how much of a slugging percentage game it is as opposed to a batting average game. You know, your your team has obviously been involved with successful companies, but as every venture firm out there has, you know, a number of your investments, I imagine, have not, you know, turned out to be successful. And, and there's obviously, you know, quintessential winners that, that you've missed out on. And, and I say this to get, you know, to the core question of, you know, what is it about startups that makes it, you know, really hard, even for the best, you know, to predict winners and losers. And, you know, I know there have been many learnings, I imagine, from your winners, but, what have been the most important lessons of your misses, and, and how have you really harnessed that to become a better investor? Right. We, we used to actually try to quantify uh, these things, <laughs> and I'll start out by saying it didn't work, but you, you can be tempted to do this because you know you need, when you're making an investment, you know you need a good management team, you know you need a good idea or product concept, and you know you need a big market opportunity. And when we tried to quantify these things, we would, before investing in a company, rate the opportunity on each of those three things on a scale of one to five. And obviously you want to invest in the 15s, right? Yep. And not invest in anything that's down around seven or eight. Um, and, then, and then the judgment calls are the ones that are 12, 13, you know, in that range. Um, the problem is it, it just it just didn't work. There were so many examples of companies that had, you know, reasonable management, but not proven experience management, but they'd have a gargantuan market opportunity, and they would just go after it, nail it, and you'd have a great investment. There were also examples of companies where you thought going in, you really had everything. You had the great experience management team, big market, and a good idea. And the company sometimes just didn't perform very well. And it, it was it was hard to diagnose exactly what the problem were, was because, as, as a friend of mine used to say, there are millions of ways to lose money, and I think I found <laughs> most of them. <laughs> um, there are just a lot of things that can't go wrong, and... Um, and that's why one of the skills you need in a management team is flexibility and the ability to pivot and see what's coming so that if things aren't turning out as you expect, you can change course and um, end up with a good outcome. Um, 
management team than there used to be, and I think the quality of product or service, um, long ago you, you had a lot more protectability, as I said, and barriers to entry than, than you can usually find today. So, so that, uh, that quality of idea has to be there, but the execution becomes very important to get there and get there fast. Yeah, it's interesting because I, you know, I know I know most venture firms kind of operate on on this type matrix where you know they evaluate you know product, market, and team, and and different firms have different you know index over index on on different areas of that matrix, right? Some you know some firms have a very very strong technology and product focus. Some say you know the product and technology is okay and, and the management team is good, but we really want a massive market opportunity. And then there's some you know investors that really focus on um, you know, we're investing in people at the end of the day and, and the product and the market is important. But if we're investing in the most impressive people in the world, you know, even if it's not this first product or it's a pivot down the line, there's two pieces. A, they're going to get to the right idea because it's a good team. And B, you know, the real challenges don't just come from kind of the product market fit early stage. The real challenges will come, you know, from scaling. So do we, you know, have a mature voice in the room? Do we have a mature perspective? And that And that doesn't necessarily mean, an old perspective or a perspective of folks that have been in the industry for 20 years, but, you know, really a team that has the fortitude to lead a company through, through the different scaling and the different, um, you know, types of challenges that emerge is, has there been a favorite part of, of that matrix or that triumvirate that you've favored over the years or you've, you've thought about it, you know, it's, uh, it's hard. I, I know to, to kind of concept to highlight at a high level because every deal is different. Um, but are, are there pieces of that, you know, puzzle that you've over-indexed on, whether it's, you know, people, product, market, um, any, any one of those three? Uh, yeah, I, I think um, the market has to be the one thing that you don't want to compromise on. You, you really want to see a big market opportunity. Um, it, it can be a little bit forgiving in that um, if the people – that you have doing it aren't aren't doing very well with it. You can add people, change people, but you usually can't change the market that you're going after. Um, I know that sounds a little contradictory to what I said about needing to move fast, and and I think both aspects are true. You you have to move fast, or you might you might not make it. But sometimes you do have the opportunity to change people or augment people in order to get a good outcome. Um, so I, I like things that have big market opportunities. So you've, you know, you've spent a long time in the Valley. Um, and, and I have a two part question for you on, on that front, which is, you know, first, what makes, you know, the Valley unique is, is really just a, a center of innovation. Um, and second, you know, what can other U S cities do to, to jumpstart innovation? You know, my, my two cents on the ladder, I, I think everybody is, you know, I mean, I'm from Atlanta, I'm from a secondary market. I, you know, I hear a lot of folks around this uh, area of the country really trying to be the next Silicon Valley. And, and I don't think that's the right goal. You know, I, I think to become startup hubs, cities should focus less on, you know, trying to become classic hubs and, and really should go all in on, on their competitive strengths. You know, I think Pittsburgh, Arizona, have actually done pretty good jobs of this. Um, you know, they've they've started to incentivize a lot of companies to come and pilot, you know, AI-based solutions in their cities. Um, and I think that kind of approach um, has a lot has a lot of positive power. You know, it's a good way to push the local direction of you know, the educational community 
um, in an area which, you know, which is where the future is going to be. It's a way to build up capabilities in the city, build up skills. Um, obviously, AI talent um, is going to come to the city to be a part of those types of projects. Um, and then I think it's a, it's a good way to demonstrate the ability for, you know, government and state to, to work with corporates, you know, to say that, hey, this is a friendly regulatory policy or, you know, come here, there's, there's an opportunity for universities and, and large companies and startups to, to partner together. So, you know, talk, talk a little bit about what makes the Valley unique and, um, and then what, from your perspective, you know, if you were clean sheeting an environment, um, you know, how would you, how would you create an innovation hub? And that could be, you know, Silicon Valley all over again, um, or that could be, you know, other U.S. cities. Great. Well, I want to clarify for your uh, listeners that I have always been in Los Angeles because that's where Brentwood Associates was started. And, um, of course, a lot of my investments, both the ones I've been involved with personally and, of course, a vast majority of the firm's investments have been in Silicon Valley, so I'm, I'm pretty familiar with the Valley. Um, but Los Angeles has the same kind of situation that you've talked about with Atlanta and other cities, that it, it, it doesn't have the network that Silicon Valley has had, although it's done well, certainly in the last 10 years, and created an identity of Silicon Beach. And um, there are quite a few startups here in the Los Angeles area now. Um, sadly, I think, because the, the, it's not very helpful, the most important aspect of an area being a good area for innovation is having already had some successful companies in the area. I mean, Silicon Valley is what it is because in the early days, Fairchild Semiconductor, Intel, and National Semiconductor were located there, and that was the birth of the computer business. And um, there's no doubt that having high-quality educational institutions around is another important part of the puzzle. Um, Stanford and Berkeley have been major contributors to Silicon Valley, and Boston, which has been another early innovation hub, of course, has Harvard and MIT. And um, Los Angeles, I think, is doing well because it's got UCLA, USC, and Caltech, and and other schools as well. So those are important things. Um, regarding clean sheeting and, and starting something from scratch, I'm going to dodge the question but refer you to a book a friend of mine wrote, uh, Victor Huang and his colleague Greg Horowitz. Uh, wrote a book called The Rainforest, and it's actually right on that topic. Um, it grew out of work they did for some foreign countries that hired them to really help figure out how the foreign country could get an innovation center started there. And so they studied everything that was working and not working. And uh, it's hard to boil it down to just a few things that you want. Um, obviously, a you know, a few successful companies and good educational institutions are part of it, but there's a lot of other factors that go into it as well, and and that book really does a good job describing them. At a, at a high level, you know, what do you what do you think is the role of government in all this? And and I think it's a two part question. I think you know, there's one part which is, um, you know, actual local government, um, and you know, whether that's again working with corporates, whether that's you know actual regulatory policy internally. Um, and then I think there's another part of it, which is, you know, at the national level, um, you know, I, as, as someone that comes from a, um, you know, immigrant family, I've obviously been uh, a little bothered by the rhetoric that's going on in American politics today. 
Um, so to that latter point, I would ask, you know, what are the what are the types of policies you you know you would like to see you know thought through and enacted in the foreseeable future to keep um, American businesses competitive? You know, there's local politics, and there's you know we can have the discussion about you know Silicon Valley versus LA versus Atlanta, et cetera. But then there's national politics, right? There's 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 an element of you know being a place where people around the world you know want to come to the United States to start companies. So how do you, how do you think about the role of government and, and policy, you know, really at the local and the national levels? Yeah, let me start with national because I, I think the answer is a little easier. Um, I I totally agree with you on immigration. We ought to be welcoming immigrants. I think probably half of the companies, maybe a lot more, I haven't counted, uh, of our companies have been founded by immigrants or sons or daughters of immigrants and. Uh, there's no question when you look around the valley or, or any of the other successful innovation centers in the United States, a, a lot of the entrepreneurs are immigrants. So we need to make it easy for those people to get into the United States, and we need to make sure that other educated people, not just founders of companies, but engineers, people that can work in these companies and, and add value to them, are, are able to get here as well. Um, so. Obviously, I think the federal government needs to be careful. Uh, you know, I'm, I won't get into the politics of, of keeping us secure. We all want the country to be secure, but there's there's a way to do that and still enable immigration and and people who have talents to come here. And I think we need to make sure we, we do that. Um, as for the rest of federal policy, the um, the main thing is the federal government should quit pampering venture industry, and and uh, they don't have to do a whole lot to help it. I get politicians from both parties coming, acting like they want to be known as, you know, a friend of, of entrepreneurs and a friend of of innovation and asking what they should do. And my answer was, it's just, just quit doing a lot of the stuff you do that hurts the business. We talked about Sarbanes-Oxley, but Dodd-Frank was another bill that was really bad in that it created huge regulatory burdens on venture firms, even though venture firms are not causing a systemic risk to the economy, which is what Dodd-Frank was supposed to be about fixing. Um, I know it cost my firm upward of $50,000 to comply, even though we're an exempt organization under the definition of law, and when you multiply that by lots of firms throughout the country, that's a huge tax. One of the other things that's really annoyed me is this rule, the 409A rule, when you're issuing stock options, you've got to get an outside valuation consultant to tell you what the stock is worth. You know, that that doesn't work better than the old system, which was the board in good faith deciding what the stock was worth. In fact, boards used to do a better job, in my view, because consultants will come to the company and say, write me a check for $10,000 to do this valuation. And by the way, what valuation do you, you want? Exactly. You know, so, <laughs> um, that doesn't work better than the, than the old uh, good faith system, but it's a huge tax, again, on entrepreneurial America for each company to pay $10,000 every time they want to issue stock options. So um, it, it's these kinds of things that I think the federal government should stay away from. And, and they pass laws with good intentions, but they don't really understand how those laws are going to work in practice. 
practice, and that's that's part of a problem, I guess, with government. At the local level, I think um, it's harder. A lot of mayors are very sympathetic to wanting to get businesses into their community and are actually, because they're local, quite approachable in terms of, you know, being able to go directly talk to the mayor and, and voice your concerns and, and talk about the kinds of things that the cities can do to help companies within their borders. Um, I think Eric Garcetti in L.A. has tried to do that, as have past mayors of Los Angeles. So I, I don't have a particular formula for what I would ask a city to do. Again, I think a lot of what you want them to do is not do things that make it harder to do business within their borders, uh, as opposed to affirmative things that they need to do. Um, and, you know, a lot of it also is, is attitudinal, I think, in a lot of cities, if the mayor expresses concern for uh, innovation and a desire to see it happen and a willingness to help those companies, that encourages companies to get started because they know that they've, they've got a, an ally instead of an opponent in City Hall. So, you know, Brad, as, as we round out the conversation here, I'd like to switch you know, a little bit back to where we started the conversation, which is you know, on, on your personal journey. And, you know, I... I, I think careers are all about people, and you know you've worked with the great people, obviously, over the years at Redpoint, and you know you've gone to college and, and graduate school with great people. It might be challenging to pinpoint one person, but I'll ask if you can. Um, you know, who's impressed you the most over over your long career? You know, what have you learned from them, and and more broadly, and I think more importantly, how how has this really defined how you think about success and leadership? I think good leaders do that, and you know, to touch back on the politics 
aspect of thing. I think one of the frustrating things for all of us right now is the president would probably do better if he listened to all the people around him and um, and took their advice. But uh, you know, different people have different styles. Yeah, I think you know one one of the best pieces of literature or or you know document that I I read this year has been you know. Jeff Bezos' uh, you know, annual letter to shareholders. And I think this year, even outside the tech community, it really went viral as a letter. And I think the line that I liked the best actually out of that entire letter was setting a culture to disagree and commit, right? And so it encourages open and honest conversation, encourages diversity of thought. But regardless of what the outcome is, you know, even if you know, he is the leader of the company disagreed, once a decision had been made, there's a full-fledged commitment to, you know, to support and to, to act in that direction. So, you know, it's already challenging enough to act in the market, but you're not, there aren't internal inertia or internal forces that are acting against. Um, one of my, uh, one of my mentors, uh, Kip Agopian, who was a founder of Netwood Associates, um, always had a sign up in his office that said, if two people always agree, one of them is unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good, it's a good sign for somebody to have when they're thinking about their own leadership style. You don't want people that always agree with you. If they did, then why do you need them? Absolutely. No, I, I like that. I like that a lot. You know, as, as a final question, if you had to distill, you know, the most important lessons from your career into a few observations, you know, what, what would those observations be, right? Is it a mindset you would advocate um, you know, people internalize, is it a tactical focus you would encourage? You know, these days, would you specialize in a certain, you know, technology or industry, or maybe even take the alternative approach and say, you know, philosophy or liberal arts, conceptual problem solving, you know, human empathy, those are the areas to focus in given the way the world is changing. You know, what, what's the advice you would give yourself if you were starting all over and coming fresh, you know, out of the Stanford JD MBA program today? and it is to find something that you're really passionate about, that you really care about, that you like to do, that when you get up in the morning you're going to feel like you're going out to have fun instead of going to work because you're going to do much better at it. And when I took the job at Brentwood Associates coming out of school, I was choosing between three different uh, jobs and venture capital was the lowest paying of them. And this was well before the 2000 period where, you know, we could see that maybe it would turn out better financially. It, it just looked like it was going to be a lower paying job. <laughs> and, um, and I took it because it's what I wanted to do. And so uh, a classmate of mine from Harvard, Steve Ballmer, went to Microsoft. Everybody knows that story. And he went there because he was really good friends with Bill Gates, and he was really into software. And Steve dropped out of Stanford Business School to go there. And, and this was before Microsoft was public and before we knew that it was going to be as successful as it turned out to be. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't a calculated decision. It was a decision that that's what he wanted to do. And when you do something that you really want to do, you're going to do it a lot better than if you do something that you feel you have to do. Yeah, and I, so, I think one of the pieces... I just tell young people that they ought to find something that, that, that they really care about, and, um, and they'll, they'll do it well. 
I like that. I like that because I think it's even if, you know, at the end of the day, it isn't some magnanimous success. Um, there's, there's a different piece, which is, you know, fulfillment isn't just driven by monetary rewards. I think fulfillment is driven also by enjoying your day, enjoying the people you've worked with, building relationships. And there's, there's a piece there, which is if you're truly enjoying what you're doing, you're going to get that level of satisfaction that is um, incredibly challenging to replicate in other environments. Well, Brad, this has been this has been great. I, you know, thanks so much again for for making the time. This has been a, a truly you know inspirational and, and enjoyable conversation. 